You're listening to the Outdoors Channel. Who? It's a splendid idea. Hello and welcome back to the Outdoors Station. Yes, the Outdoors Station. A new name which we've had to adopt due to legal reasons. Over the next few weeks, our website and content will be rebranded, ready for a fresh launch in 2007. You'll find us over at theoutdoorsstation.co.uk very soon. So, don't worry, we haven't gone away, we're just rebranding, and we'll be back at full strength very soon. In the meantime, book club host Andy Howell has been holding it all together, and been working away with some exciting new interviews. So, sit back and enjoy an interview with Martin Wainwright, in a coffee shop somewhere in the UK. Welcome to a two-part special of the book club. One of the bestsellers of 2005-2006 was A Lifetime of Mountains, the best of A. Harry Griffin's Country Diaries, originally published in the Guardian newspaper over a record-breaking 50-year period. The diaries have been lovingly put together by Martin Rainwright, the Guardian's northern editor. Recently, I caught up with Martin to talk not only about A Lifetime of Mountains, but also about a second collection of Guardian diaries, a gleaming landscape that's recently been published to great acclaim. But first, we sat down amongst the hustle and bustle of the Leeds Art Gallery Cafe to talk about Harry Griffin and his love of the lakes. Now, I've got a confession to make. I'm a Guardian reader, a Guardian reader through and through, and probably will be until the day that I die. What I like about The Guardian is its mix of modernity and tradition, and there's no finer Guardian tradition than The Country Diary, that exquisitely crafted piece of writing that appears every day in The Guardian, and it has done for over a hundred years or so. Um, the great runaway success for me in book publishing last year was um, the first of uh, two compilations of Guardian Diaries, and I'm delighted to be sitting here in Leeds with Martin Rainwright, the northern editor of The Guardian, who has compiled um, these two collections. Martin, welcome. It's very nice to be here, Andy. Now, um, I suppose there might be a few people out there who don't read The Guardian, perish the thoughts, <laughs> and who don't know um, about The Country Diaries. So you can, can you just give us a flavour about them and just, just why they're so fantastically wonderful. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd be delighted. It, it is, I think, the longest-running column in British journalism, and um, Harry Griffin, who, who uh, I did this collection last year of his uh, diaries, he, he, he himself alone did it for 53 years, and that was a record, I think, except there was a there was a woman on something like the Peterborough Evening Standard who did a kind of children's corner who just beat him, I think just pipped him to the record. But the, the Country Diary's been going for 102 years now, and... Um, it's, it's fascinating to read the way it's changed and the way it's kind of described our changing countryside. I, one of the sort of original entries that amazed me, and I suppose it's a criticism of myself really, I hadn't kind of thought about this, was it was a description, going back a bit to the author's youth, of when the railways came to Britain or when they really took off in the sort of later part of the 19th century. And I did that at school and so on, but I never realised what this guy was writing about was that the coming of the railways killed villages all over the country because all those old coaching inns where we now go, you know, and have a meal out and go and have a drink in a beautiful country pub, for a period between the arrival of the railways and the arrival of the motor car, which was another revolution, th th they were empty, they were boarded up. Um, this guy said the countryside looked as though it had been ravaged by an invading army because all the people who used to travel through the countryside suddenly were all going by train. And so it's, it's insights like that... Um, 
which are really fascinating, I think. Plus, of course, a wonderful nature observation. You know, everything from dolphins to otters to... Well, the, there's the deepest one ever written. Um, was a country diary that was done at the bottom of the coal mine at Monk Weymouth um, on Tyneside. Uh, and um, Phil Gates, the lecturer at Durham University, who wrote that diary, went all the way to the bottom of this coal mine to write about some tiny little kind of semi-transparent flea, which is only found at the bottom of coal mines. Yeah, that about sums it up. They are wonderful, the country divers, and they encompass virtually every aspect of the outdoors world and the outdoor life. Now, there are two volumes of them, and uh, a new one's just come out, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. But um, the one that caught my imagination last year was the collection of Harry Griffin's diaries, and he'd, he'd written them for over 50 years, which is uh, some achievement. And they're fantastic things, and they're certainly... Uh, slightly different from many of the diaries in that they, they truly are a kind of diary of the, the high crags and the fells of the lakes, aren't they? Yeah. I mean, Harry was famous as the man who wrote diaries from places that nobody else could reach or very few other people and certainly no other journalists on The Guardian. Uh, there's one marvellous one about... Um, he, he had a debate with somebody about the highest building in England and this other guy came up with somewhere, I think no doubt in the Lake District um, that was a little sort of cabin somewhere maybe maybe that lodge, Ruthwaite Lodge on the way up Helvellyn, I'm not sure, something like that um, but Harry trumped everybody by finding this tiny little smuggler's cave above Bowfell Buttress, very near the top of Bowfell which is about the fourth or fifth highest mountain in England and he describes it in this diary how you, you actually have to back into it, it's so small, you, you, you go to the entrance like a little sentry box and then you sort of push your bottom in and creep into this thing and he he, he, he did the sort of, you know, don't practice this at home kind of thing because it's quite dangerous because there's this enormous slab um, of rock running smoothly down um, over S cores, which you could, if you lost your footing, you'd go sliding down there. So Harry, Harry's diaries have that kind of extra elements uh, to them. I mean, there's everything in there, isn't there, from um, skinny dipping in lakes to, I mean, my favourite entry is the, the one where he complains about losing his bobble hat, which, of course, <laughs> all of us who've been on the hills have done that from some time to another. Uh, the other thing that fascinated me was reading the diaries, uh, which I don't remember at the time, but reading the collection, is actually you, you go through his life with him, don't you? You, you, you? you see every little twist and turn and tragedy of his life in, in a way that's expressed through walking and expressed through the country. Side, and it's a very rare gift, that, I think. Well, both of these books have got quite a lot by me. I mean, um, I edited them, but I, I, I couldn't resist the chance to sort of write a bit about them in each case. Um, there's, there's loads of diaries in there, but I've also, in, in Harry's case, as you say, really done a little sort of mini-biography of him because I was very interested by Harry. I knew him quite well, um, and he was a very military man. He had an aquiline nose and a big moustache and a crisp, you know, officer-like way of speaking, and he was, in fact, a Lieutenant Colonel from the war. He was a Lieutenant Colonel in intelligence. But I was fascinated to discover that he wasn't actually really like that at all initially. His father ran a little shop and kind of decorating business in Barrow in Furness. And Harry left school at um, the age of 15. I've actually got his school certificate at home because his, uh, his daughter's given me various things to do with Harry, like his army uniform and this school certificate and his typewriter, which nobody quite knows what to do with. So at the moment, I'm looking after them. Um, and he became a cub reporter on the local newspaper. And so he was, he was a self-made man and also a self-made journalist. And actually, he turned out to be a brilliant journalist, as well as his country diaries are perhaps uh, in a superior 
vein to journalism. You know, they're more what we would call writing. They're more literary. But I think the real strength of them, and it applies to quite a lot of the other Guardian country diaries, is that as a journalist, he was a trained observer, and he noticed things, and he had an eye for a good story, and he was quite ingenious. He um he used to freelance for the BBC when he was working uh, as a local journalist in Kendal, and. Um, the BBC wanted him to do an account of the flooding of the River Kent, which had caused lots of damage in Kendal. But by the time they came on to him, they left it a bit late because the, the spate of the river had gone past, so the floods were there, but a flood, you know, a static flood doesn't make very good radio. So Harry thought to himself, and he listened to the noise from the A65 going, which at that time went through the centre of Kendal and went right outside his office. And he realised that the noise of this traffic sounded very like flood water. It was kind of noise. So he stuck his BBC microphone outside the window and recorded the traffic, and they played it. Said, you know, then, then it was, you know, here's Harry Griffin, and I'm looking out over this terrible scene. And he, was, he scooped the world on the Bluebird tragedy, you know, when Donald Campbell was killed on Lake Coniston. Well, Harry was there as a journalist, uh, working for the Lancashire um, Evening Post. And um, he, again, he, he had a lot of nous. A lot of the journalists went up the lake to watch and photograph the Bluebird speedboat as it came zooming down. But Harry, who knew Donald Campbell, and actually went in Bluebird on one of the trials, he reckoned he was, he was the fastest journalist afloat at that time, he stayed at Campbell's base because the radio reports from the Bluebird were coming through to Campbell's caravan. And so he was the first to know that there'd been a disaster. And he also had, crucially for a journalist, all the um, telecommunications apparatus to immediately ring the BBC and say, you know, this has happened. So, you know, he was a scoop man as well as a wildlife man. He was um, somebody who uh, cared very passionately about the lakes, but he wrote from um, other places as well. I mean, most not notably Scotland, where he uh, used to be a winter skier. And there's, always a, there's also a series of interesting um, entries from uh, the Rockies as well, isn't there? And um, he said everywhere he went, he seemed to stay religiously to his two-weekly column in the, in the Country Diary in the Guardian. It was fascinating to see that. He did care very much about the lakes, and he didn't just write about them. He participated in the civil life of the lakes. He sat on a lot of committees and, and he, there's some very good diaries about things like whether they should flood certain valleys, whether electricity should be taken to certain remote uh, valleys. He, he, was, he was very early on in the field on diversification, you know, trying to get more, uh, a wider range of people to come and enjoy the lakes. Um, so he did all that kind of thing. He also, it was Harry, uh, really, who got the Bob Graham round going, you know, this absolutely fearsome fell race in the Lake District. Well, Harry didn't, uh, Bob Graham was the person who first did it, but Harry publicised it, actually not in The Guardian, but in the Lancashire Evening Post, and that, that got that going. But yeah... He, he, he strayed from the lakes. He didn't altogether like doing it. And when he went to Canada on holiday with his family, his daughter Sandra was telling me and it was awful because he was in a perpetual state of worry about how he was going to get his column back to the Guardian because he never missed. In 53 years, he never once missed a column. He's the only diary, diarist never to have done that. So, um, yeah, he did venture further afield, but, it, but uh, at, the, at the cost of family, you know, peace and calm. He, um, he used to cut the paper that he typed onto, didn't he, to, to, <laughs> to, to fit the kind of column dimensions of the, of the newspaper. Yeah, well, one of the funny things, The Guardian's got a very good archive, which the public are, you know, welcome to use. It's like a public library, and there's some marvellous stuff in there. There's some things in there that you know, I'm quite surprised about, really, because people who... Some very intemperate letters from people who are still living about how much they should be paid, you know. <laughs> Roy Hattersley, you know, people like that. And um, 
there's some furious letters from Harry Griffin because, as you say, and I've actually got the, well, I've given it to the, or Sandra Griffin has given it to the Felon Rock Club now, but all his original diaries are extant. And the Guardian kept changing its mind about the length, you know, sometimes it was 300 words, then a new editor would say, no, no, just 250, or occasionally went up, never much more than 350. And Harry would, would cut his paper accordingly so that he knew that when it started coming out of the typewriter, uh, drum sort of thing. I mean, people probably don't know what typewriters are now, but in those days it was a typewriter. That was he was coming to the end of, the, of his allotted length. But as any journalist knows, and you know, people like me are totally hardened to it, so it never even occurs to me to complain about cuts. Things are always cut for newspapers, or, or very frequently they are, because it's a limited piece of physical space. And there's this marvellous letters from him saying, you know, I resign. I, I, I'm absolutely fed up with this. You know, and he did best Lieutenant Colonel style. And the the sort of emollient people at the Guardian kept writing back to him saying, no, no, Harry, no. In fact, I did it myself. I spoke to him on the phone several times and said, you can't give up. You know, your readers would, you know, it would be terrible. Um, and it was a kind of soft soaping exercise. But you know, he, that's all he wanted really. He just wanted somebody to say a big sorry. Now he was a contemporary, of course, of Alfred Wainwright, and um, uh, knew him quite well, I think. And one of the few people that was allowed to go up on the hills with him. Yes, I don't think um, Alfred Wainwright particularly liked going on the fells with Harry Griffin. I mean, they didn't really like going on the fells with anybody much except himself. But. Uh, he, he did let Harry go with him a few times because he respected Harry Griffin's knowledge of the fells. And Harry Griffin, you know, was, was a very formidable rock climber and Wainwright was a, an extremely clumsy man. I mean, I'm a wonderful writer, but there are a lot of descriptions of Wainwright, you know, sort of shuffling along in his plimsolls and um, taking ages to get over quite simple obstacles. But the thing about Harry was he was a terrible talker. Uh, he would go on, he really would go on and on and on. And Wainwright didn't, you know, he liked to have elevated thoughts when he was walking in the hills. So um, it, it was only a few times, but th there, was a, there was a slightly funnier episode, actually, when Harry went walking with the editor of The Guardian, a man called Alistair Hetherington, who was um, three editors ago now. He was the editor during the 1950s and 60s, and, and a very great Guardian editor, um, and, and also a fell walker. He, he wasn't the only Guardian editor to be a fell walker, but he was probably the most enthusiastic fell walker. And Harry... Um, left an account of walking up um, I think it was Great End or somewhere, when, part of the Scorefell Massif anyway um, with Alistair Hetherington and Harry was talking all the way telling Alistair Hetherington things that were wrong with the Guardian and he says something like you know, unfortunately the wind was blowing the wrong way and when we got to the top or when, we, when they got back to the Waswater Hotel I think Alistair told me you know, he'd only picked up you know, just hardly any of what I'd been saying and I'm sure this was tactical <laughs> and he was, he was really a telegraph man wasn't he in terms of his own reading I think. yes I think the only thing he read in the Guardian was his column uh, which, he, which he snipped out and kept in a cuttings book religiously um, and, and which I'm, I'm glad about because records like that are very important and, and incidentally his cutout columns are very funny because he marks in ink all the changes and all the things that the Guardian got wrong because it had a bad reputation at one time for misprinting and and things. Um, but yeah, no, he was a Telegraph and Times man, and um, he didn't politically, he didn't, he had some friend, he had a friend who was a Labour peer who was from the Lake District. When he was a younger man, I think Harry was a bit more radical, but there's a bit in the book about him talking about something like, you know, that odious little Blair. <laughs> I, that that I, I made me smile. That was fantastic. And, and that was quite a long time ago. I mean, there's quite a lot of people nowadays who talk about that odious Mr. Blair, you know, having the poor chap's been in power for so long that, you, you know, you, you don't, your popularity cannot last that long. But Harry Griffin was on to him very early on. Yeah, there's nothing like hill walkers to kind of 
have focused very quickly on all kinds of political deficiencies. I'm just thinking of the, the current debate about wind turbines and uh, access to lands and uh, those bunch of people who think we should take all the cairns down off mountains mm. and things like that. And that, that kind of comes through the, the, the Harry's stuff, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Um, Harry was very good on people, actually, although his main subject was, I would say, first the landscape uh, and secondly the wildlife and the flora and fauna. Um, very close up with that were, were, were the sort of personalities, the people he met, in, including a lot of the campaigners. Um, Lord Burkitt, the lawyer, was somebody he knew quite well. In fact, they were, Lord Burkitt, who was a very, very famous lawyer, uh, like Harry, started off at Barrow and Furness um, Board School, whatever it was called. I think he was a year ahead of Harry. He's the only person to have a fell named after him, Burkitt Fell in the Lake District. It's the only one named after a, a, an actual person. Um, but the, the other character I remember Harry describing, among all these people who played a vigorous part in Lake District life, was a German professor who he met at the Worcester Water Hotel when he was a young man. And in those days, that hotel was very famous, a bit like the Penny Gurid in um, North Wales, for attracting these kind of scholarly climbers. You know, a lot of them were Oxbridge um, professors. And um, there was one very famous one whose name I just can't remember now, but who had an artificial leg, and he'd had it specially made so he could rock climb with it. It had sort of hooks and things on it, you know. But this German professor told Harry when he was a young man, he had this theory about when you, um, when you washed or when you swam in a mountain tarn, which Harry uh, was, was keen on doing, enjoyed doing, you should never dry yourself, because he said the water goes back in, naturally, into your body, and sort of refreshes you, which I didn't think is true. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, you know, yeah. very amusing. Um, the diaries are full of those kind of insights, aren't they? And, um, I mean, Harry, as we said, did the diary for over 50 years, and then in that kind of country diary tradition... Um, passed it on, but, but was very careful about who he passed the tradition on to, wasn't he? Yes, he was. He, it wasn't actually in his gift, strictly speaking. I mean, it was really up to the Guardian, but Harry, Harry himself had been nominated uh, by a, a very famous um, naturalist called George Muller, uh, who was a, a Quaker a man who lived up in the Lake District and was, was tremendously expert on um, everything to do with, uh, with the lake, especially he was a, a great fisherman and... Um, Muller was quite interesting um, because he got involved with the hunting controversy very early on and there's some quite interesting correspondence and diaries from him about making the case which hunt hunting people often do make and I think personally there's a lot in it I mean I, I don't have views either way terribly strongly myself but but Muller's line was always you know we are the people who really know what we're talking about whether it was otters in those days or fox hunting and of course the lake district's got the great tradition of foot hounds like the blencathra foot hounds wonderful you know even if you don't like hunting i, I defy you not to find it a, an incredible sight when you see the foot hounds going out on the fell um so this guy muller had said to uh, the editor of the guardian before hetherington who was a man called ap wadsworth who was another man who left school at 15, by the way, the only Guardian editor ever to have done that. Um, there's this very promising young writer uh, called Harry Griffin who works in the lakes, and, you know, when I come to give up, which I think I'll be doing soon, he actually carried on like Harry till he died. Um, how about Griffin? So when Griffin became aware that, you know, it wasn't, he wasn't going to go on forever, I mean, he was 93, Griffin, when he died, um, he'd spotted somebody 
who is the current barrister from the Lake District, Tony Greenbank, who I think is a very worthy successor to Harry Griffin, uh, in some ways almost better, I think, sometimes. He's got a very um, nice sense of humour uh, as Tony. And... Um, and Harry effectively said, at one time, he, I think he was, Harry was going to leave him his typewriter. And then Tony um, Greenback taught Harry how to use a computer. And from that evolved the fact that um, Tony didn't want Harry's computer. So I think sort of Harry said, well, you know, you can have my column then. <laughs> and, um, and so it transpired. Well, we're beginning to move on to talk about the second collection of, of the Country Diary in general. But just to, to wrap up these comments about Harry, I mean, there's everything in these contributions, isn't there? There's the, uh, there's the excitement of, of the fells. There's tragedy. I mean, some of the pieces about his personal tragedy in his life, the death of his first wife and the tragic death of his second are incredible but somehow they come over in um, a fascinating way really and always expressed in the notion of the outdoors and the lakes. Yes that's true he, he did suffer great tragedy I mean his um, his first marriage lasted for 50 years just you know he, he had his golden wedding um, but uh, he, he then uh, met um, a, a lovely lady called Violet Macaulay, and they, they got married. Um, in fact, it, it's funny, Jeanette Page, who edited The Guardian Diary at the time, told me that um, Violet Macaulay had contacted her to raise the question about whether she... She, she was you know, quite an elderly lady herself, certainly over 60 by then, and Harry would be over 70, I think. Um, and, and Violet Macaulay got in touch with Jeanette about the delicate question of whether they should live together before marriage, because she wasn't at all sure what the families would think. So quite interesting, The Guardian was sort of agony on, you know, in this case. But then she died, alas, within six months. And then he then had a third companion, a lovely lady called Josie, because Harry couldn't live without female company. He, uh, it was partly, I'm afraid to say, unromantically practical. I mean, he literally couldn't boil an egg, Harry. And he came from that generation where women were, you know, objects of beauty and grace and, um, and, and so forth, and also able to cook. Um, so Josie uh, lived with him, and then she in turn died, and he was just devastated. But worst of all, and it's a great tribute to how Harry kept his enthusiasm and kept his, you know, just kept going. Um, his son predeceased him, uh, Robin, his son. And, and I think, I don't know, and I don't think there was ever an inquest, but Robin had been, he was a climber too, and he'd been climbing in the Himalayas, and he went on one of these very high-level organised climbs that happen nowadays. I forget which peak it was, but it was about 23,000 feet, so it was, you know, really, really high. And the guide got altitude sickness, and Robin Griffin took over as guide and they went up to the top of the mountain and came back down again but I, I believe you don't do you don't go to those altitudes without a physical change in your blood which can take some time to settle down again and and your blood becomes thicker and Robin about six months after this Himalayan expedition, expedition uh, Robin Griffin had a heart attack and died and um you know, it was just desperate. I mean, it's the sort of thing every parent dreads. Well, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of tragedy in the book, but there's a lot of fantastic, uplifting stuff as well. And um, it's just a wonderful collection. In the foreword, which uh, was written by Chris Bonington, who there's a lovely diary entry of Harry going out on the hills one day and only meeting one person all day, and that just happened to be Chris Bonington. But I mean, in it, he, he, he talks about, well, maybe we should have a collection of uh, Harry's writing every year and I think he says that would keep us going for at least 10 years, I think. 
Yes, it would. It would. Yeah, because he wrote, he wrote more than more than fifteen hundred of them. So um, yeah, well, I'm up for that if, uh, <laughs> if the Guardian wants to. Well, I know that um, everybody that uh, I know has read that book has absolutely been enthralled with it. And so, if you haven't read this yet, um, the uh, uh, Lifetime of the Mountains, it's called the best of A. Harry Griffin's Country Diary. You should rush out and buy it this Christmas. It is the most fantastic book and um, uh, undoubtedly deserves its accolade as probably the best walking book last year, I, I think. Well, that just about wraps up this first in the two-part conversation about the Guardian Country Diaries. I've been talking to Martin Rainwright about a lifetime of mountains, the best of A. Harry Griffin's Country Diaries. In the second part of our conversation, I talked to Martin about A Gleaming Landscape, a second collection of Guardian Country Diaries that's recently been published to rave reviews. I also talked to Martin about his forthcoming book on the coast-to-coast walk. Until then, this is Andy Howell saying take care and happy hiking. My thanks go to Andy once again for making the book club what it is and go from strength to strength with some really interesting interviews. There'll be much more from him very soon. Until then, this is Bob Cartwright at theoutdoorsstation.co.uk. The new name, theoutdoorsstation.co.uk, beavering away in the background and trying to keep it all together.